This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by The Alcohol Experiment, a free 30-day challenge designed to interrupt your patterns, give you control, restore your health, and put you back in touch with the version of you who doesn't need alcohol to cope, relax, or enjoy life. More than 220,000 people have already tried The Alcohol Experiment for themselves and have seen improved sleep, increased happiness, reduced anxiety, and so much more. Join thousands in this inspiring, hopeful, and exciting program where you examine your beliefs and reconnect with the best version of you without ever feeling like you're missing out. Start today for free at alcoholexperiment.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm super excited about my guest today. Um, I have on Robin from Work at Health, which is an organization that has just done incredible things. And uh, Robin, thanks so much for joining and being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of yours and um, I'm really excited to be here and just have this midday talk. It's really a eye of the storm for me. So very much. So awesome. Um, so let's do, uh, kind of what I always do, which is like, go way back to the beginning, you know, um, in your, in your journey and your story, uh, way back when you, you're as a kid, even your first drink, like, where did it all start for you? Well, Annie, (laughs) like, (laughs) where didn't it start? Um, I, let's see, let's see, I'm like, how far back do we go? But um, so like a lot of other people in recovery, I come from a long, long, long line and of um, people who have struggled with substance use disorders and specifically for us, really alcohol use disorder. So, um, you know, some people call it alcoholism, some people call it alcohol use disorder, some people call it drinking too much, like whatever, it doesn't really matter. And, you know, I think sometimes in healthcare, we spend way too long pontificating on the vocabulary, um, while also like limiting the vocabulary that we have. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so I come from a long, long line of people that struggled with drinking specifically, and probably a lot of drugs and, and other things got thrown in there, but really the horror stories are, you know, um, surround alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. So from a really young age, I was always aware of it. I always, we always had two recycling bins, one for like canned paper and one for wine bottles. Still do have three, four at home, not my home. Um, you know, I've just been surrounded by alcohol my entire life. And I always, I always thought I, I never understood that it changed behavior at a, as a young kid, right? Like I never really understood what it did. I just thought it was like a, every other drink, like dad likes seltzer, dad likes beer kind of thing. And uh, until one day, so that was my exposure. And then one day when I was in sixth grade, I came home and we um, are from Canada originally, but um, grew up in Florida for grade school and above. And I came home and uh, my mother was on the couch and she was crying. And my only relative from Canada that lived close to us in Florida was my grandfather. And she was like, your grandfather was sick. He was very, very sick and he died. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, sick with what? Sick with the cold, sick with the fever. And she just kept saying he was very, very sick. Mm -hmm. And he ended up killing himself and my cousin, Jeffrey, and his wife, who wasn't my grandmother, but my step-grandmother, Marsha. And it was this horrific event. So at home I was getting, he was sick and then he left, right? This really 
uh, euphemistic way of talking about it. And at school, everybody came in with newspapers. It was all over the news. It was all over, like down to Miami, up to Toronto. It was just all over everywhere. Um, but that was really my first exposure to alcoholism and its destructive effects. So um, quickly after that, I don't know if this is the radical archetype or what, but that plus a series of like, you know, just traumatizing experiences in sixth and seventh grade, um, I had my first drink around that time. And I remember feeling as though I had left the planet of earth <laughs> and ascended to the heavens, you know, when I imbibed spirits for the first time, I mean, it was just like, this is the best and I want more and more and more. And the story is what I hear all the time, right? Like it made me feel comfortable and made me feel safe. It made me feel excited and um, penetrated boredom, you know, and penetrated though deeply a lot of discomfort for me and a lot of uh, just, just dissatisfaction with life as it was. So that was sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, quickly, you know, alcohol is hard to come by at least um, the quantity of alcohol that I desired is hard to come by. So quickly I started messing with food. So a big part of my story is also having an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And I went from being um, to dieting, to starving, to being anorexic, to flipping to bulimia when that anorexia was sort of breaking down, um, to flipping back again and struggled with this crazy maze of alcohol, anorexia, bulimia all through high school. And my first recovery center was when I went to boarding school in Spain and I had to fly home on my 18th birthday to go to an inpatient rehab center in South Florida called Renfrew. And there has since been a HBO documentary on Renfrew because it was a terrifying place. And so that set me up to think about treatment and, you know, fast forward eight years later, I created work at health, you know, um, in my late twenties, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much my story. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, oh, I didn't get in recovery then, by the way, I relapsed until for the next four years. And then finally it was a combination of things that got me into recovery, which we can talk about, but yeah. Did, did the food do for you what the alcohol did? Mm, not as successfully, but it, you know, it's trade-offs. Food was accessible and alcohol was inaccessible, but alcohol was more effective. So actually what happened, what really took me down was when I got into college, um, there was so much more access to alcohol. Like, you know, I went to university of Michigan and any of the different, uh, party stories, they didn't really accept ID or they accepted my fake, really fake ID. And I could just buy as much alcohol as I wanted. And suffice to say, I dropped out and then I was expelled and then I begged to come back. Like it was just this <laughs> just big dramatic affair. I ended up graduating by the skin of my teeth, but it was, uh, it, that took me down really fast. So alcohol got me there a lot quicker, but it brought me down faster. And then what were, what were some of the moments when you were just like, okay, something's got to change? Mm, you know, I always had this big flashing billboard of Papa, my grandfather in my head. Mm -hmm. So in, when I started drinking really heavily, especially in college and started, you know, stumbling into class teachers started calling me out, going to my econ exam with wine teeth and someone confronted me, you know, gosh, um, I, you know, I, I always knew what was to come. And I thought of it in a really, I'm a really practical person. I tend to be really logical. So I thought of this, it, I remember thinking of it in a really practical way saying, this is my end, right? Like begin with the end in mind. 
Um, but this is my end. This is where I'm going. I'm going to speed up my trip to get there because I know it's a painful process. It's a strange, inverted, weird thought, but I remember drinking really hard and thinking that and thinking I might as well just go all out now, you know, because that's the way it's going to end for me. And I don't want to drag this out until I'm 65, you know? That is fascinating. That's really, really interesting. I, I actually did a, um, we kind of had a virtual event last week where there was like 8,000 people on. And one of the questions that I was posing, because it was true for me, and it was one of those things that you think, well, this is true for me, but it, it wasn't real clear. And I'm, I don't know if this is true for other people, but one of the questions that I posed is like, for me, I felt like, okay, there's going to be some, like, I will fix this. Like I will save myself. Like at some point, like there is some future version of me that is going to come in and figure this out. Like I'm certain of that and almost, but I'm waiting for things to what, just, just get worse. Like how, like, and, and so you're almost saying, yeah, that's true. And I knew that would happen, but I had to push the gas pedal. I had to accelerate it in order to kind of bring that. I was like, I have to appreciate this while I still have it. Like someone is going to take this away from me. I, I think also I was right after rehab for the first time. Right. So I was 18 and then I started drinking every single night and I was a daily drinker. I was a morning drinker. I was a middle of the night drinker. Like I truly was around the clock drinking. I wasn't, a lot of people don't have that experience. They're more but I would say most people don't have that experience in fairness, you know, and, but I did, I definitely was just all the time. And, and, uh, and so I remember thinking, I'm not going to be able to get away with this forever. Like the other shoe is going to drop and I'm going to enjoy this now. I'm going to really go all out now. It was such a sick thought because at the same time I was so exhausted and my skin was gray and my hair, I had, chopped it off in a blackout and thrown it at someone, you know, just, it wasn't at my peak performance and I wasn't at my peak happiness and still Russell Brand says this. Um, he, he actually says this thing and I don't remember where he said it. Otherwise I'd look it up. But he said this thing where he looked back at himself in the midst of his using and he was like on a couch in a grimy room and he was like shooting up and only somebody that was in recovery and that truly had been there could understand the longing for that the longing for that mess. And that I guess it's a, a self-esteem projection or however you want to go into that, whatever door psychology or whatever. But uh, it was this, this weird masochist feeling of let's just push this really hard. You know, I'm in pain and I'm just going to be in so much pain and I don't want anybody to take away this ability that I have right now. So that's what it was. And I, you know, I, there was that thought, but then there was, you know, so and this didn't go on forever and ever. By the time I was 21, I landed in another rehab center in Arizona. And um, and in Arizona still, it was 30 days later and it was incredibly expensive. I mean, everybody knew it was so expensive. Everybody in process group talked about it being so expensive. This is before insurance covered the cost of treatment, which really they don't really cover the cost of a lot of treatment. Um, and so I remember thinking, I was laying on the lawn <laughs> with my friend, Emily. And I remember saying, you know what? I'm going to drink, drink when I get out, like Winston Churchill. And she was like, what are you talking about? Your whole life has blown up. And I was like, I'm just going to have, he called it a drab, but I'm just going to have a teeny little bit every day 
That's all I'm going to do. And I still, it's such a strange thing. You can hold two thoughts in your head. I'm a complete alcoholic. I can never stop. This is going to run me into the ground via suicide, manic depression, et cetera. And I can control it completely. And I'm only going to have a little, you know, it's, I think that's why it's so hard to treat and why it's so hard to fix, right? Or in, in oneself or not fix, but so hard to ameliorate yeah. in any sort of way is because you have all of these paradoxes that you're holding. Yeah, all of this cognitive dissonance and, and both things can feel equally true. And then sometimes they don't, but then like, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Um, I would make myself selfie videos because oh. I'd have like these cravings that were so intense and, and I'd be like, there's nothing worse than this. And then I'd give in and I'd make myself a video. There's one at like some club I'm in the bathroom. And it's like, Annie, this is worse. <laughs> like, remember <laughs> that wow. feeling this is worse, you know, because I just feel so um, disconnected and yeah, it was. That's incredible. Do you still have them? Yeah. Yeah, you could do such some a, of them. There's a lot of them that I don't. MFA thesis on that, <laughs> but that's cool. Wow. Um, do you so? So then you know something finally clicked. So how did how did that go? You know, Annie, it was a long, <laughs> slow click, <laughs> but it was a multi-year click. Um, you know, I think. Well, what happened really, I mean, I, I can actually pinpoint when I stopped drinking. It was this time that I was in rehab. I was in aftercare. This is like month nine. I was told that I could go back to university at like month two and then three and then four. And then I was like, you're living in California now. You are a resident. You know, I, I was never allowed to go home. <laughs> so it was month nine. And, and how did they judge that? Just out of curiosity. Like, oh, what? I was just, well, I was one, I was 21. So really rebellious, right? I was in a traditional rehab center where you had to go to group every single day. And did you choose to go there or? Uh, I didn't, I did not want to go. I it was between there and not like being, having any money anymore and being out on my own. And I didn't want to go out on my own. So my parents were like, you can either, you know, get straight A's in school. You can go back to being a normal kid or you can go to California and get help. And so I chose, and then I didn't choose. Like, you know, I was there, but I wasn't totally willing. It's mm-hmm. that weird thing that I turned my keys one day and four days later, I was resentful at everybody else for keeping me there, but I had agreed to go. So it was just this messy relationship that I had. I, I thought I agreed to the 30-day program plus a month of follow-up, but they, you know, because I don't really know why they won't let you leave until the director says you're ready. And so month three, month four, month five, I was there for nine months. And then finally I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, but it's one of those, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I could have left at any time, but I wasn't an adult yet. And my parents were still funding me. So I was just kind of like, they're really mad at me. But so I went home (laughs) to Colorado I went home to Colorado to um, visit my parents and it was over uh, Christmas. And like, my dad was like, I'm so proud of you for staying sober. You've been sober, I think at the time for like 90 days or something. He was like, I'm so proud of you. You're on your way. Like, it's so great. I was like, yeah, and sober, awesome. Then my parents decided to go out that night for dinner, which is sort of a strange thing, but um, you know, and so leaving me with my two little sisters 
And as soon as the door clicked shut, I remember thinking, where's their alcohol? And I knew they had hit it, but they like hit it in their closet upstairs. And so I scavenged through the house and they hit it in their closet upstairs. And it actually was in a safe with a key. And I knew where they had hidden the key. I don't know. I think we have this like crazy brain, this x-ray vision for where it is. (laughs) If nothing, if there's a will, there is a way. And so I found the alcohol. I like chugged half a fifth of vodka, which, you know, um, and then more and more blacked out. And by the time my parents came home, I was completely stark raving mad, like really, really drunk, screaming at everybody, all of that. And I woke up in the morning and my dad very much was like, you don't get to talk to the family anymore. You don't call me. You don't blink at me. Like you don't, you're cut off from funds. You're cut off. You know, he was just cutting me off. I mean, it was true Al-Anon, you know, graduate school for him. He was cutting his like beloved first daughter off. And I was so shaken by that because he had always been there. I mean, I'm very close to my father. Um, I was so shaken by that. And I didn't have any uh, winter boots. And so my sister took me to the bus stop and I was in flip-flops and I had no boots. And it was the dead of winter and Breckenridge. And I was like, I can't do this life. I was basically like, this is so hard. And I, they clicked for me. Like I will lose not just everything in the abstract, but I will lose the people I love today if I don't do something. Mm-hmm. And, and I was willing and it was just like a second of willingness. And so I went back to California. I had a return ticket. So I went back to California and just threw myself into AA and I did AA, but I also lived with people in recovery Um, I did everything they asked me to do. I got my eating disorder under control through uh, Overeaters Anonymous and Eating Disorders Anonymous in Orange County. And I went to a really good psychiatrist. So there definitely was medication in my story. So I got on the right meds and I went to a therapist. So I did a lot of talk therapy, a lot of CBT stuff. And that's it. You know, it's kind of what work it offers today without the packaging. Without Yeah, so how did that bring you to creating work it? So in my story, I have a lot of treatment centers. So I went to um, Renfrew, like a big yikes. And then I went to Sierra Tucson. And then I went to um, like four different detoxes. And then I ended up at this recovery place in Newport Beach. And so I had seen the insides of the best treatment in the world. And I put that in quotes, but gold standard treatment, right? I had been in for longer than a year. I had been in the finest institutions that don't even accept insurance, but like price tag back then was like $60,000. Today, maybe $2 million because of inflation. I don't know what it would be today, but they were very expensive. And I was left with like just this hollow pit of experience. Like what really got me well, what really got me into recovery wasn't any of that. It was really just this combination of great medication, great friends and community and great therapy. It was really that if you boiled everything away. And that's what I stayed sober on for 20 years. You know, I've never relapsed past that when I found that special combination. So um, when I was in AA and uh, for a long time, I know I'm not supposed to talk about that at the level of press radio and film. So I'm breaking the tradition. But when I was in the rooms, um, I had a lot of sponsees and I had a lot of people come to me and say, 
um, you know, my daughter is drinking too much. What do I do? And I kept having to refer people to treatment centers because that was the only option. And nobody that I referred would either be able to pay or get in. If it was like a, you know, Medicaid sponsored treatment center, the wait lists were really long. It was just so inaccessible. On the flip side, you know, I live in, lived in the Bay Area. I was working with these other, I was working a lot with this incubator, Rock Health, these companies that were doing these incredible things in healthcare. So I would be talking all day to people developing wearables that detected sweat and could, could anticipate the kind of medication you need to use. There's just, you know, things like that, like these unbelievable cross-disciplinary, these health innovations. And I thought, this is crazy. Like at night, I'm going to these grungy basements and as the only answer or in everybody's dining around me and by day I'm working on these really well-funded um, mechanisms and innovations and apps and other areas in cancer and diabetes and these other acceptable moral high ground areas and so that was really the impetus it was like how can I get all of that joy but also all of that evidence and all of that science into um, a, a package right that's affordable and accessible to 90% more people, you know? And so that was the impetus. And I was in the Bay Area at the time and it was the right time to do it too. It was in 2014 that um, we started put to, putting together our team 2015 and then 2016 we were funded. So it was a really good time to try that. And then we switched to medication and being kind of more of a full stack clinic later, but we were right place, right time in a lot of ways too, as far as the business world. So, and so can you talk a little bit uh, for people who aren't familiar with what the work it platform does, especially like one of the reasons I think it's really cool is because so many people ask me like, okay, like your stuff worked for me for alcohol, but I, I still have this addiction or I still have that addiction. I'm still struggling here or, um, you know, when people get stuck. So yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? People get stuck and they get stuck with the comorbidities or the co-occurring things. Um, I had a lot of that, like it's something that Lisa and I, my co-founder and I were really serious about is that, you know, we're complex human beings and it's really difficult to treat one thing in isolation. And it, we've taken it to um, a new place actually this past year, which is amazing. Like now we treat, we can cure hep C in seven visits. We treat HIV, we treat anxiety and depression and that bevy of um, disorders, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, uh, eating disorders, like tons and tons of different things. So work at what we are today is really a virtual clinic. So you can come in to work at, make an appointment. First, we call it the stabilization period. So you um, are assessed for comorbidities, meaning if you have OUD, if you have AUD, if you have depression, anxiety, um, you know, we'll treat it all in one place. So we'll prescribe medication if that's appropriate. If not, we'll pass you on to um, behavioral health, you know, to, to assess. We do a lot of science-based assessments and what you specifically need. And then from there, you enter, once you get that rhythm of prescribing and physical stabilization and working out what I think of as like the social determinants of health, like you're in a physically safe place, um, you have food security, you basically all things stabilize then you go into a strengthened mode. So then you start learning about the higher education stuff, right? Like CBT concepts, we call them auto thoughts and antidotes, like black and white thinking um, would be on one side, antidote to that would be um, color vision on the other side. So that's one framing. So basically looking at your thoughts, 
in general and using CBT principles. And then from there, going into what we call um, like kind of a thriving onward mode, that's where the community kind of comes into play, start going to groups a lot. And the groups are centered around these different life things and uh, like divorce or how do I navigate this or X, Y, and Z. Uh, and then that's it. And we, our goal is to get somebody from struggling to a place to where they want to go, but to a place of um, success, basically. So you can stop there too. Like a lot of people come in, they say, I only want to be off pain meds, right? That's what I want. I don't want any of the other stuff. Um, and that's a goal we can help them achieve, or they can come in and say, I just want to have the best life ever. And that's a goal we can help them achieve as well. So and that's it. We do it all through an app. You can log in, log out. You can jump in, jump out. We accept a lot of different insurance. So that's been a, definitely a labor of love. Insurance health plans are really, you know, slow to adopt. Um, but we really try in every single state. We're in 18 different states, but we try in the states that we're in to accept Medicaid and Medi-Cal, Medi-Cal in California, but Medicaid in every state. So right now, I think 70% of our patients are on Medicaid, which is a huge thing for a social impact company. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I think is so fascinating of what you've done, um, and, I, and I love it because it does, you know, you treat all the things, right? And so that's when we first talked, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And you uh, have medications, which I also think that there's a lot of people who might benefit from medications who you know, that's just not all that accessible to people. I remember when I first started, when was Work It founded? 2015. 2015. So very similar. This Naked Mind was published in 2015. And I feel like um, when that happened, if when people wanted to go to get naltrexone or something like that, a lot of doctors just wouldn't even touch it or prescribe it, right? And so there was no if someone wanted to try it, because I remember the documentary One Little Pill came out and I had Claudia on my podcast and she was talking about how it worked for her. And then we got this whole slew of emails of people wanting to try it out. And, you know, I'm like, just whatever works, like, let's just fix it, right? Like, who cares yeah. what it is? Just like fix what, however it works for you. And I, I was like, tr talk to your doctor and I got so many responses, like, no, my doctor won't even touch this. And yeah. so it's really cool what you've done in, in making it so accessible. Um, and it's interesting too, because I think you're a for-profit company right. and AA is a nonprofit and then right. rehab centers are for-profit and ineffective wholly right. from yeah. our, you know, from everything I've heard. <laughs> uh, and so you exist in this, in this middle, um, therapy is obviously for-profit doctors are for-profit hospitals are for-profit, all of these things. Right. But have you gotten I know for, for my organization, it's like, there's so much pushback because you're not AA. And even though we do the alcohol experiment totally free, and even though like, I'm so dedicated to making sure everything is accessible from a yeah. price point, which as you pointed out, rehab is wildly inaccessible. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly get pushback. Yeah, we get pushback. <laughs> we get pushback. Um, we've gotten pushback at every step. Now it's easier because it's more validated. I think the world is sort of saying, it can't be just AA and rehab. Like it, it just can't be, right? It can't be, um, it is incredible for what it is, but it's pretty lawless. It just is. And it's definitely layman teaching layman. It's, it's, it's not a clinical environment and it's not a medical environment. And it never purported, I mean, it never wanted to be in fairness. Like AA has never posited itself 
in, in the most in the AA that I love, that I know and love, it's never positive itself there. Um, but like in the medical treatment environment, you have these luxury rehab centers that sort of own, own the Google search results. They own the pathway. So even if you have mental health centers or community mental health, they're so drowned out by what we call the Florida shuffle. So if you Google, you know, you'll just be sent to Florida, sent to Florida, sent to Florida. It's pretty crazy. Um, you know, I think the world hopefully is kind of awaking to this idea of, you know, to, to, to there are many doors, right, to what we call recovery. And there need there are as many different types of people in the world. That's how many options there should be. Like truly, 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 there's room for all of it. AA, I don't, I think AA is just, I think, you know, speaking from an Alcoholics Anonymous perspective, I think that group specifically has worked so hard to carve out legitimacy in the world and worked so hard from the 1930s on to say alcoholics deserve to be treated not like criminals, but by people with this what they call moral failing, but by, by, by with people with this problem, but they deserve to be helped and they can get better and they can live in this big colorful, colorful world. AA has worked so hard to carve out that space, but to be so defensive about holding that space steady, I think that's really what it is. I think it's saying, this is how I got sober. Don't take it away from me because this was my life raft. This was my everything. And so I think there's a lot of fear about letting other things in. So yeah. that's my interpretation. And hopefully it's changing. Like a lot of people in work at are in AA at the same time. Yeah. Like unless your AA group is anti-medication, which a lot of them are, you know, it's totally appropriate. And we're normalizing that people could be in your program and our program and AA. I know I've been through many, many, many different programs and they've all helped in some way or another. Yeah. It's just all can be a step along the path and, and to getting the help you need and you know, which is why I think it's so important to have these sorts of, of conversations and, you know, like just really open up options for people because it would be, I mean, delusionary to be like, well, my way is the only way that works. Or if, you know, it, it's just not true. Like you said, it needs to be all the types for all the different types of people. And I think that's, what's so beautiful and so important. Um, so Robin, let me, let me ask you the question that I always ask to, to wrap these things up, but if you were going to go back in time to Robin, who was finding the keys. It's funny, not funny, but you know, we've got to find oh, humor in it, but yeah. like <laughs> had this, you know, uh, x-ray vision for where that alcohol was um, on your first day home. And then waking up the next morning and getting dropped off without your, um, without winter boots in, in the winter time. And you're just going to tell her how your life has turned out and where you are now. What would you tell her? Oh, I would say, just go back to California. Like, please don't. I flew up to Minnesota after that. And I jumped on a train after that. I just, I would say, please just like A to B, you don't have to go, you know, A to Z. Like you can just go straight there. <laughs> it's accessible. It's available. It's waiting for you. This big, beautiful life. Like you don't have, this pain is so optional. Like suffering is optional. You know, that's what I would say. Like just, mm. just, you know, just go straight there, get on the big highway and shoot over there. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to, we don't have to keep waiting for that future version of ourselves. We can actually for good you know, do something now. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. we don't have to keep like shooting off the highway. I actually bow my partner when we drive together, he has this funny thing. He's really creative and he has this 
problem, which I diagnose as a serious problem. He thinks it's just part of driving, but he shoots off the highway. So I'll look up and we'll be in some random town. And he's like, I don't know how I got off the highway. So that's what I was doing. I kept shooting off the highway. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. Yeah. That's hilarious. Oh man. Yeah. Um, well, this has just been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy. And uh, where can people learn more about Work It if they are curious and want to look into? I think coach? go to our website, just www.workithealth.com. Okay, perfect. That's awesome. where we are. All well, right. Thank you, Robin. All right, bye. Have you tried the alcohol experiment? Okay, if not, drop everything and go to alcoholexperiment.com. This is a free 30-day challenge and it's designed to interrupt your patterns and put you back in touch with that best version of you. You remember, it was that version of you that's living your most joyful life, that version that didn't need alcohol to relax or have a good time, the one that's able to have more fun than ever. Again, this is a totally free challenge and it can change everything for you. So learn more and join me for a 100% free challenge at alcoholexperiment.com. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps me reach somebody who might need to hear this message today.